when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be discussing whether royalty and business royalty should keep shtum about the EU referendum and Labour's continuing warfare with Tony Blair and his legacy. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by the FT's political editor, George Parker, Sarah Gordon, our business editor, and Marcus Roberts, director of international projects at The Posters, YouGov. Thank you all for joining. So we'll begin with a story that ran in the Sun newspaper this week. The nation took a collective gasp when its front page proclaimed Queen backs Brexit. The details of this story suggested Her Majesty had some Eurosceptic inclinations, but a few details of her actually advocating Britain leaving the EU. As well as the royalty, we've also seen business figures pop up to advocate Brexit, and the reception hasn't always been good for them either. So, George, we'll begin with the Queen. And do you think she actually does want Britain to leave the EU? Because the quotes in that Sun story suggested she had some Eurosceptic inclinations, but she was not saying, I'm going to go and get a green tie and join grassroots out and get on the campaign stump. Well, it would be entirely consistent, wouldn't it, for the, the sovereign to be worried about national sovereignty and the sharing of sovereignty with our European partners, notwithstanding the fact, of course, her family hails from Germany and is probably the best example of political union. I don't know. I mean, it's very, very difficult to tell. I mean, the Queen gave a speech in Berlin just last year, written for a, presumably by the Foreign Office, in which she was sounded rather positive about European unity and the need to avoid divisions. And the attributed quotes to her in The Sun come from four years ago from a dinner attended by various cabinet ministers, including Michael Gove and Nick Clegg. It's possible she was grumbling about the European Union. And frankly, it's a bit surprising if she wasn't. I mean, everyone even pro-Europeans grumble about aspects of the European Union, particularly around the time of the Eurozone crisis. So it wouldn't have been surprising if she said that. To suggest that her Euroscepticism necessarily translates into her supporting a British exit from the EU, which is what the Sun claimed, I think that's probably a stretch too far. There's been something of a witch hunt in Westminster this week. You mentioned this dinner where there were a few cabinet ministers, privy council members who were there. And the two figures have been looked at. Well, the primary one is Michael Gove, who was then the Education Secretary, now the Justice Secretary, and Cheryl Gillan, who was then Secretary of State for Wales. And the reason the focus is on them is because they're both Eurosceptics. The Sun has been quite hard in pushing back, saying that it wasn't Michael Gove, or at least not saying it was Michael Gove, I should say. And do you think we'll ever find out who it was? I don't know. I mean, it would be rather surprising if The Sun were to identify the sources on such a sensitive story. No newspaper discloses the identity of its sources. So there's been lots of supposition about, about it, hasn't there? I mean, to be honest, Michael Gove is far more likely to have spoken to the right-wing press than Cheryl Gillan, who was the Welsh secretary at the time. Michael Gove was at the marriage of Rupert Murdoch and Jerry Hall at the weekend, as was the editor of The Sun. So there were quite people joining up the dots all over the place. But Michael Gove, as you say, has denied it. The Sun's denied it. Will we ever find out? I suspect probably not. So Sarah, moving away from royalty for a moment, the businesses who have come out for Brexit tend to have been of a sort of smaller nature. Your big banks and what have you have all been much more pro-EU in their feelings. Now, John Longworth, who was former head, was head of 
the British Chamber of Commerce came out and said Britain should leave the EU, and then he was forced to resign. This happened at the end of last week. Do you think there was some kind of conspiracy there, you know, sort of a wink and a nod from number 10 to get rid of him, or was this his own members doing this? And do you think this will put off other people from coming out in favour of Brexit? Well, the first thing to say is that it's not entirely true that smaller businesses are pro-Brexit and larger businesses aren't. I mean, it's a it's a truism that gets repeated a lot. But in fact, there are a number of even FTSE 100 chairmen who are pretty Eurosceptic. Uh, so I think that's the first point to make. Secondly, I mean, the pro-Brexit campaigners and indeed Boris Johnson immediately suggested that Downing Street had put pressure on John Longworth, the Director General of the BCC, to step down after he came out in favour of Brexit at the BCC's annual conference. I think it's probably true that there was a conversation between Daniel Korski and either Longworth or at least the other representatives of the British Chambers of Commerce. Whether that constitutes pressure, who knows? I think the really interesting thing is to ask whether if Longworth had spoken out in favour of staying in the EU, whether he would have faced the chop. My personal sense is that that's not the case. The BCC took a very purposefully neutral stance on Brexit, slightly surprisingly given that its own research suggests that its members are on the whole in favour of staying, although as most businesses there's a wide range of very nuanced views on the topic. But I think the fact that he was forced to resign essentially because he came out in his, as he said, his personal capacity in favour of leaving, I don't think it would have happened if he'd said, I'm in favour of staying. Because one of the other big sort of business institutions, the CBI, has very different views in that we had the Vote Leave campaign has popped up at the CBI conference and started shouting about the CBI being the voice of Brussels in the UK. You know, if the CBI had sort of big U-turn like this, do you think it would have faced a similar kind of public backlash? There is no possible world in which anybody at the head of the CBI would call for Britain to leave the EU. So I can't quite envisage a parallel situation. I think the CBI, in fact, made a slightly different mistake, which is that they came out very early. I mean, it must be now, what, two and a half years ago. And they came out with a very strong message saying that we should stay in the EU. And this has faced, I think, a lot of justified criticism less the criticism that it's faced from Sajid Javid, the business secretary, who said it's disgraceful that the CBI is taking a stance when the prime minister hasn't even finished his negotiations. I think that was slightly irrelevant since the negotiations, frankly, have never been about issues which were of much influence over business and the future of British business. But what I think they did do is they spoke down to their members and they decided what their members should feel and then they told their members what to feel and, and what to believe on this issue. And it, it's a problem with all the business establishment in this country. And the BCC is as guilty as the CBI is. And indeed, John Longworth is as guilty because its leaders believe that they can tell their members what to think and what to vote rather than listening to the voices that are coming up from the grassroots, which, as I say, are very, you know, there's a wide range of very nuanced opinion on this and a lot of very legitimate concerns. George, one of the things that Sarah mentioned was um, this chap, Daniel Korski, from Number, who works in Downing as an advisor to the Prime Minister. He also featured on the, a splash of the mail that revealed there'd been some kind of conversation there. Is Number 10 sort of actively going around and strong-arming businesses into, into either being silent or coming out or what have you there? And does that matter at all, do you think? Do you think the public care if they do that? I'm not sure if the public cares that much, but I think that Number 10 and 
have been you know, strong army people, not just businesses, but Tory MPs. And Daniel Korski is certainly the hitman in that operation in Number 10 Downing Street. There was a bit of a joke running around whether Daniel Korski would be on the phone to the Queen having a word with her, asking what she meant. And I was having a chat with a Tory MP today who announced he was coming out in favour of Brexit and got a text almost immediately from Daniel Korski saying WTF. So, you know, there's no doubt that there's bit pressure is being exerted. But what do you expect? The government's got a position. The position is that they want Britain to stay in the European Union. David Cameron's future as Prime Minister is dependent on him winning this referendum in just two or three months' time. And of course, you want your whole team, whether it's your advisors or your chance of the Exchequer or supportive business leaders out there making the case and doing everything you can to win. And one thing we do know about David Cameron is he's a complete competitor. Part of the problem is, is that there's been a slightly chaotic message from Downing Street to business. And not just to UK business, but I was in Paris and Brussels over the last week. And I, I got this message also from a lot of continental European businesses, is that the message has been confused. You know, Downing Street says, speak up, then they say, be silent, then they say, speak up again. And I think business has been very, they've had their fingers badly burnt in terms of both the confusion of the message, but also the reaction that there has been when they have spoken up. And there's a small coterie of business people who are very close to number 10, who are very happy and have been happy for a number of years to speak up in favour of staying. But I think the lesson, it was a question you put earlier, a lesson that will come out of the Longworth debacle is that businesses are pretty fed up with being corralled on one side or other of the debate and then facing a lot of criticism, frankly, whatever they do. I think they see this as a no-win game. And then I suppose the question is, after the reaction to this, is this going to make business more or less likely to speak up on the EU question? Because they could obviously just sit it out and let the politicians argue about it. Don't you think the really interesting question is whether voters care what business thinks? Do you think they do? I think that the column inches and the fuss that is made about, you know, one day one company comes out and says they're in favour, then another doesn't. I think what the voting public, all the surveys suggest, what the voting public is in desperate need and they have a great desire for unbiased information. They want to know what will happen to jobs, what will happen to employment, what will happen to trade. And I think that this increasing sort of trading both of statistics and the number of businesses pro and against is not, frankly, terribly helpful for voters. And this is obviously why a figure like the Queen coming out, George, on the campaign is a very good neutral, non-biased voice here. And then just very finally, we've seen Boris Johnson gave a speech um, this, this week on Friday where he gave his first thing and he talked, I think, possibly for the first time about what a Brexit vision would look like. And he referenced Canada here and sort of said, you know, there'd be no free trade of people. There would be, and it was quite, it was, it was, it was just very, very specific there, do you think? Is that a vision people can rally around or are we going to have this kind of debate constantly about what Brexit would look like? I think it's quite interesting that Boris Johnson's role in the campaign, that he's regarded by many people in the out campaign as a bit of a loose cannon. His interview with the Andrew, on the Andrew Marr show last Sunday was seen as a bit vague and waffly. People on the outside don't really see him as a genuine outer. They think he's doing this for his own career purposes. And he was completely off message in this speech that you mentioned on Friday in Dartford, where up until now, the out camp have been very keen to avoid specifically saying what kind of model they want to adopt, specifically for the reason that the moment you do, you get pinned down by David Cameron and people on his side. The fact that Boris Johnson mentioned the Canada model lets the cat out of the bag here. Yes, it's true there's no free movement arrangement, but equally, Canada will face tariffs exporting into the European Union. The deal with Canada doesn't cover the financial services sector, which is obviously vastly important to this country. The other thing to say about the Canadian deal is it's been under negotiation for seven years and it's still not complete. So 
Boris Johnson at least was honest in sort of coming up with an answer, but it may not be the answer that his colleagues in the out campaign really wanted to have out there. And then just finally, Sarah, on that point, if the Canada model is the one that is sort of plumped on as the Brexit model, um, how's that going to go down with businesses? Well, I spoke to someone who runs bilingual nurseries in London this morning, and he runs Montessori nursery schools, and he'd like to be able to employ Montessori-trained bilingual nurses from Canada, and he can't because he's not eligible to bring in people from Canada. He doesn't, his, the size of his business, the legal requirements, he doesn't meet them. And he is extremely worried about what happens if we leave the EU and what that would mean, because, of course, at the moment he brings in French teachers from Paris on the whole who come to London. They work in his nurseries for a couple of years. They get their English up to a really good standard and they go back to France. So it's one anecdotal example. There are, of course, other examples of businesses that would be completely fine under the Canadian model. But I think it would certainly have consequences for a number of businesses. And now back to the Labour Party, which is still struggling to bring itself out of the shadow of Tony Blair. First, we've got a new biography of Mr Blair that came out and reviewed magnificently by George Parker in the FT weekend. Then with former PM sprung up again to warn the left they need to get involved in the EU referendum. But he wouldn't be doing that himself because nobody likes him. And then finally, we've seen Dan Jarvis, who is not a Blairite, but he's definitely to the right of Jeremy Corbyn, who is considered a potential leadership candidate, pop up and make a speech on the economy. So people are wondering, is this the man to save Labour? So George will begin with the EU referendum. So Mr Blair is obviously a big fan of the EU, wants Britain to stay in, thinks it's imperative. I think he actually wants to have more integration with the EU and he's urged the left to do more. Um, why is Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leadership, not getting involved in the referendum? Well, primarily because Jeremy Corbyn thinks Britain would be better off outside of the European Union. He's part of a long-standing left-wing tradition in the Labour Party that regards the European Union as a capitalist club. And, you know, it's a perfectly respectable view on the left. And I think he's taken the view that it would be too much of a row to take on with his party, which is predominantly pro-European, to try and change the party position on it. So he's going along with it. But, of course, the other day there was a big Labour Party push on the European Union and Jeremy Corbyn chose instead to go to a CND rally. So, you know, the, the difference between Tony Blair's position on Europe and Jeremy Corbyn's is night and day. So Marcus Roberts, obviously, if Britain wants to remain in the EU, people on the left are going to have to campaign for this. How important is it in terms of where the polling is, the sort of left-wing in-vote for Labour to mobilise that? Well, without question, there is no road to Britain leaving the European Union that doesn't run through Labour voters. Labour voters will be some of the most important swing voters in this referendum. If we think about turnout in terms of roughly 20 million voters taking part, we know from the polling that effectively 8 million are, come what may, for remain, and 8 million are, come what may, for leave. That leaves about 4 million voters in the middle. Of those 4 million voters, there's a large chunk of white, working-class Labour voters who really need to be persuaded one way or the other. When it comes to issues of identity politics, when it comes to policies like immigration, they may very well favour leave. But when it comes to matters like the economy, when it comes to matters like cost of living, then they're more likely to be remain. So there's a real struggle for their hearts and minds over those emotive and important pocketbook issues. But we've obviously got Alan Johnson, who is leading the Labour stronger in Europe, whatever the campaign is called here. Um, you know, is he someone that you could mobilise those voters, do you think? And does he have the reach and the authority of the Labour leader? Alan Johnson is an important 
figure in the Labour tribe. But obviously he is not as important as a Labour leader or a former Labour Prime Minister. But in this respect, the Labour Party is really hobbled by its inability to use either Tony Blair or Gordon Brown. And I know we'll come on to that in a moment. But it's important to note how difficult it is to participate meaningfully in a campaign like this when you don't have someone who has the title leader or former prime minister. So on that point, George, so Tony Blair has said that, you know, he acknowledges he is too toxic, not well liked at all to actually get involved in the campaign. And Mark's also mentioned Gordon Brown there. Do you think there's a chance we'll be seeing Gordon back on the campaign trail? I think Gordon Brown has certainly more credibility amongst the hardcore Labour voters we were just talking about there than Tony Blair. And Tony Blair, as you say, has shown some self-awareness about the fact that he is toxic in this debate. I also think he might actually be getting it wrong in terms of the tactics as well, because Tony Blair was saying we need to make the emotional case for Europe, the more passionate case for Europe. And you heard the same kinds of arguments in the Scottish referendum that the the no campaign or the pro-union campaign was too focused on the economy, wasn't making the case for union stronger. The point is that in the Scottish referendum, if you were in favour of the United Kingdom, you were going to be voting that way anyway. You didn't need to have your heartstrings pulled. And the same thing with the European Union. If you're emotionally your heart swells to the sound of Beethoven's Ode to Joy, then you're going to be voting to stay in whatever happens. So I agree that the point is you've got to get down to the basics of job security and cost of living, things like that. Absolutely. It's worth noting here that there's probably a difference between the kind of campaign that people in Westminster want to see run and the kind of campaign that actually is more likely to shift the voters that you need. And very often the campaign that Westminster wants is quite an emotional one. It's a patriotic one, it's an exciting one, it's full of twists and turns of story and narrative and colour and the like. But the campaign that can often have the most effect on voters, as we've seen time and time again, not least in last year's general election, where we had long-term economic plan reiterated until the cows came home by the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. That kind of campaign proves that actually the hard work of detailed economic argument over a long period of time can pay off and pay off handsomely. The other Blair thing, as I mentioned at the beginning, George, obviously, is this new biography that's carved by Tom Bauer, who has looked at Robert Maxwell, Gordon Brown, I think Richard Branson as well, many, many people, and he's well known for his acerbic writing here. Did this reveal anything new to you about the Prime Minister? You know, you covered the new Labour years, so you knew it all in, out, and back to front, but was there anything new that came to you? Well, I thought the most interesting bit of the book was where Tom Bauer gets into the period after Tony Blair leaves office, which is probably the bit of the Tony Blair life story that's been least covered. I think the fact of the matter is that most people have formed a view already on Tony Blair. And for his critics, he's a liar. He's a money grabbing warmonger. And if you read Tom Bauer's book, your prejudices against Tony Blair will be reinforced. And the fact of the matter is that because the Blair legacy has been extensively picked over, You've got to set the bar pretty high, if you're Tom Bauer, to make people reassess their view of Tony Blair, or indeed to be shocked by anything that Tony Blair did. And I think it's interesting that Tom Bauer did does examine Blair's legacy when it comes to the health service, with education in particular. And he draws the conclusion that Tony Blair always thought that things could be fixed by money. I think that was probably the most interesting part of his of the Blair of, of the Bauer book that you know he draws a continuum through Blair's time in office when he thought that money could fix everything to his time out of office when he still plainly is enthralled to big money. I think for people in labour markets, the period after office has been the most controversial. I think you see his huge property portfolio jetting around the world, doing consultancy for various world leaders, some of them are sort of maybe a little bit dodgy as well. And I think that's a lot of people in Labour feel that it's the ultimate betrayal of what Blair was meant to stand for. Well, the Labour Party, the Labour movement cannot forgive 
the former prime minister for Iraq. And that's what it all comes down to. Had he been merely a great domestic prime minister, then I think there would have been a lot more forgiveness for whatever on earth he decided to get up to after he left office. But because of Iraq as effectively the original sin of new labour, you have a bit of a problem in terms of getting passed onto any other subject matter, any kind of analysis, objectively speaking, amongst very large chunks of the labour movement when it comes to Tony Blair. And Labour's obviously still trying to battle with the legacy of New Labour with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership going on this week. And we saw um, Dan Jarvis pop up this week, um, George. Now, I'm sure our listeners will not be quite sure who this is. Um, he's a backbencher, the Labour MP for Barnsley Central, who is one of those rare things, which is a rising star, who is also on manoeuvres as well, who's someone who has told people privately he's thinking of running for the leadership, he's planning to run for the leadership, and he gave a speech on the economy. Is Dan Jarvis the man who could be the moderate sort of guy to challenge Jeremy Corbyn and win the next election, do you think, George? Well, I think Dan Jarvis and the people around him think that he is. But you put your finger on it at the start that most people have no idea who Dan Jarvis is. I mean, the one thing that we do know about Dan Jarvis, and most people know about him, is that he's a former soldier. He fought, I think, in three wars. And so, in some respects, he's the perfect person to sort of appeal back to the sort of the patriotic, um, old-style Labour votes. You know, his patriotism is not in question. It's a stark contrast, incidentally, to Jeremy Corbyn. But I think he's part of a, sort of a wider movement of younger generation Labour MPs now who are starting to do a bit of thinking about what, wrong, what went wrong because Jeremy Corbyn didn't just win because the other candidates were not very appealing as politicians. It was because they had done no thinking. The, the Labour Party seemed absolutely exhausted by the Blair-Brown years and had done no thinking really under the Miliband leadership. But I think people like Dan Jarvis, people like Chukaramuna and Rachel Reeves, they're starting to do some thinking, providing the intellectual groundwork. It still is a very, very early stage, I would say, to provide the basis for some kind of putsch against Jeremy Corbyn sometime over the next year or two. What did you make of um, Dan's speech, Marcus, yesterday? Do you know? Do you think there was that beginning of an intellectual movement then? Has he got the charisma and personality one day to maybe lead the party? I think there's no question that Dan Jarvis has unbelievably excellent leadership credentials on paper, but can you translate that into a full-scale political project? And what we saw in the speech yesterday was that the answer is it's a work in progress. One of the interesting things, as George noted about Tom Bauer's book, was the extent to which Tony Blair believed as Prime Minister that any problem could be solved by money. To some extent, Jarvis's speech still had too much of that. It was still, George Osborne hasn't spent enough here and Labour could spend more there. It's pretty clear from the polling that the public will trust the Labour Party again when the Labour Party is capable of solving a problem with a solution that isn't just about spending someone else's money. If Labour can get into a politics that does that, if Jarvis can explore a politics that goes beyond just taxing a banker to pay for welfare, then there's actually a chance that Jarvis can appeal to the country as a whole. And that could be very interesting to watch. I totally agree with that. And I think that is exactly the, the heart of Labour's problems. You had John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, making another speech this week where he talked about trying to regain Labour's fiscal credibility by setting down iron rules which would guarantee that the Labour Party would spend no more than it received in taxes apart from for capital spending. The fact of the matter is you can have as many iron rules as you like, but if you don't believe the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell in particular is prepared to make painful cuts and to do more with less, you will never regain economic credibility. And finally, last question, George. Do you think we'll see Dan Jarvis on the EU referendum campaign trail much? 
I think we'll see him a bit. I think we'll probably see a little bit less of him than some of the more sort of convinced Europeans, people like Chukramuna in particular. But I think we will see him out there. I think, you know, politicians want to be associated with winning causes. And I think in the end that we will come out in favour of staying in the European Union. And again, I have to ask this every week and to every guest, Marcus, at this point, how do you think it's going to happen in June? That's a terrible question to ask a pollster. But if I had to put my money down, I would say a narrow win for Remain. Britain continues to be a predominantly small-c conservative country. And as long as leave is seen as a risk and a big change, I think the British public is more likely than not to vote for Remain. That said, the polls show just how close a race this is. And as we go back to that argument at the beginning of the podcast about white working class voters, if leave can find a path to really energising them in numbers, then there's everything to play for. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next Saturday for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.